This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We started out in the physical universe, and we moved from there to modern times, sociology, politics, and last week back to ancient Greece, and this week we move into the realm of the mind, and specifically the addicted mind in youths. It's a great pleasure to have with us an internationally recognized expert in this field of addiction. Sandra Ann Brown is a distinguished professor of psychology and psychiatry here at UC San Diego. She received her PhD at Wayne State University in 1981, has been on the faculty with us here since 1995. She works, in addition to teaching and doing her research as a psychologist, at all levels of government, leading national efforts to identify and prevent alcohol and drug problems among youth, has served as chief of psychology with the VA here, and since 2010, she has been vice chancellor for research. That office manages the research enterprise of UC San Diego, and Professor Brown travels all over the place representing us and um, creating opportunities and research experience for our faculty here at UC San Diego. Tonight, her topic is youth and addiction, can there be freedom of will? So please join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Sandra Brown. everyone. What a pleasure to be here for this discussion, and I would uh, so much like to thank Alan and Stephen for uh, the kind introduction and for inviting me to be here to share with you some thoughts and ideas about youth and addiction and what it really means to have free will in the context of youth and addiction. And I'd like to think that they save the best for last in the lecture series, uh, but I notice I'm not last. Uh, there is another gentleman who is, who shares the same last name with me, uh, Sheldon Brown, who's a much more entertaining speaker than I am. Uh, but uh, I will uh, uh, try to do a preamble for, for his presentation. When I was first asked... Uh, to come and talk with you and discuss with you about addiction and freedom, I was a little taken aback because this is not typically a topic that I present on. I really study how alcohol and drugs affect the development of children, youth, and young adults primarily and how other complications in our lives like mental health disorders or other physical disorders, make it difficult for people to deal with issues like addiction. So when I was asked uh, to talk about addiction and freedom, my first thought was, oh, anybody can talk about uh, a decision to use substances or not. Uh, it ends up coming down to the sorts of things get, that get portrayed in the media, like what really should be the legal age for drinking? Or should states legalize marijuana use? But then, the more I thought about it, this topic, addiction and free will, 
is really very different than many of the other issues that have to do with personal freedoms. And in fact, uh, uh, addiction affects fundamental processes of free will and our ability to make free decisions in a way that's quite different than in other areas of our lives. Um, It affects our ability to make conscious and deliberate decisions about our own behavior. And it is, in fact, this more fundamental challenge to free will or decision-making that I'm going to focus on this evening. And in fact, what I'm going to suggest is that I have a secret title for my presentation, which has to do with this more fundamental aspect of decision-making. And it really should be adolescent addiction versus freedom. Neurobiological assault on personal decision-making. And that's really what I'm going to be talking about this evening. So what, what does freedom mean? I'm sure many of the prior speakers have uh, defined spe- uh, freedom using a multitude of frameworks. But if we go back to even just the Webster Dictionary definition of freedom, it states that it is the quality or state of being free, as in the absence of necessity or coercion or constraint in choice or action. Constraint of choice or action. And secondarily, liberation from restraint or power of another. So how does this relate to decision-making and, in particular, adolescent decision-making? As neuroscientists, we, we think about a number of processes that uh, influence decision-making for both adults and for adolescents. And there are several key ones uh, in terms of thinking generally about what the sequence is in decision-making. First, there's this process where our attention, our motivation, our affect pushes us, drives us, to pay attention to certain things in our environment. And we consider that a bottoms-up process in terms of how information is processed in the brain. Simultaneously, there's another process that's considered a top-down process. And that is where the neocortical features of our brain really are taking control over that affect to make good, learned decisions. So processing information is the first part and kind of grappling with the control of the emotions that are a part of that. And the goal is to really make decisions that result in self-regulated choices. So decisions, purposeful decisions, come from this complicated process of the brain's wiring, and it results in cognitions and behaviors that are self-directed. And so the functional requirements of doing this, of making a decision, are that you need to have some affect, some interest in what's going on that you're going to make a decision about, you're going to be informed about, you're going to pay attention to. 
the control, the cortical control, to manage when emotions get too intense so that you can use all the information that's available to you and attend to the critical features. And finally, the behavioral competence to carry out your preferred action. So it's information processing, it's making those decisions, and then actually having the control and competence to bring those decisions to action. Well, the challenging thing for the adolescent brain is that some of these components are actually under development. They're being remodeled in the brain. Very aspects of the brain that have to do with attention, control, weighing pros and cons uh, of uh, various decisions. And in fact, about 10 years ago, there was uh, really a breakthrough study uh, led by a gentleman by the name of Jake Yeed, who at that time was at the National Institute of Mental Health. We have the good fortune of having Jay here on our faculty now, just this year, joining us. And what he studied was uh, using magnetic resonance imaging, how the brain is developing from early years, like three years of age, all the way out through the mid-20s. And he found some very, very interesting things, one of which was it's not just the structure of the brain that changes early on, but actual functional changes of the brain unfold as we mature, and that happens, that continues all the way to the mid-20s. Now, there may be a few of you in the audience who are past that mid 20 stage. Uh, I admit, I am, and uh, actually my children are right there, so I hope their brains are finally developed. <laughs> but an important thing, two important things that were discovered in this landmark uh, study of brain maturation. Uh, were that the first portions of the brain to develop from early childhood to adolescence actually have to do with structures that underlie coordination. Boy, that's important when we're young, right? And secondly, affect, emotions. So the, the brain really develops posterior to anterior. In the anterior portions of the brain, in particular the frontal lobes and prefrontal lobes, those are the regions of the brain that help us with executive functioning. That is, looking at what are the long-term consequences of what actions we might engage in now, not just paying attention to the short-term consequences. So I like to think of it as, uh, in a way, like driving a car, where the first thing that develops is you learn how to step on the gas. You learn the, the coordination and the emotion that tends to drive behavior. Uh, and that what develops later on are those stop strategies. It's how, when, when we should apply the brakes. But all of this is going on during adolescence. And that happens to be also the time in our society and many others around the world, all industrial societies, when alcohol and other substance use and problems tend to begin. You'll see from this slide on your left that 
there's a sharp acceleration um, from childhood to adolescence in terms of use. Those blue bars are actual uh, use measures. And the peak age for use is, unfortunately, in our society, uh, even before alcohol is legal. So it's between 18 and 20. That's the stage uh, of life when the largest proportion of individuals in our society are actually drinking. This happens to be alcohol slides that I have before you. On the right side, those green bars reflect the, the prevalence of alcohol disorders uh, by varying ages. And you see that same escalation and then a de-escalation as we mature as adults. And so again what we see is that the period of time in our lives when the largest proportion of people actually meet diagnostic criteria for alcohol dependence is between 18 and 20. It's before alcohol is even legal in our society. These same patterns hold for substance involvement, for marijuana, and for other drug involvement. Alcohol happens to be the drug of choice in, in our society, and that's one of the reasons I like to study it. It is the most common drug that's used twice as often as marijuana, 10 times as often as all other drugs. And it's also linked to the top causes of death in adolescence, accidents, suicide, and violence. So the peak occurs during this period of time when the brain is still under development or being remodeled, if you will. And through studies, that are uh, neuropsychological and neurophysiological and neuroimaging studies, we've come to learn a few things about how alcohol dr and drugs affects the adolescent brain. We know, for example, that early involvement is, uh, with alcohol and other substances is associated with poor thinking abilities of youth. Uh, that's true for memory. It's true for learning new information. And for those executive abilities I mentioned, planning long-term, understanding the, the consequences of one's behavior. We know that if adolescents use alcohol heavily and continue to use alcohol for a more protracted period of time, whatever their level of cognitive abilities were in adolescence, we see a deterioration. And that deterioration, um, uh, is uh, most evident in those executive functioning and in things like attention and concentration. Early alcohol involvement now through the imaging studies that we have uh, has demonstrated that uh, it is linked to both structural and neuronal activation patterns and differences in various brain regions. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, not in a complicated way, but in a way that can help us make sense out of teens' behavior and the struggles that we have with addiction. Um, uh, and finally, alcohol, because it influences these neural activation patterns, results in a different level of responsiveness to alcohol cues, especially those that are presented in the media. 
So teens who have heavy alcohol exposure are more reactive to advertisements for alcohol. And I'll share with you a little bit about that. So let me just first, first say, before I get into some of uh, those kinds of aspects of things that influence our, our thinking ability and ability to make good judgments, is that we all know someone who drinks too much. Uh, given the base rate of alcohol dependence over the lifetime, approximately 18% of Americans will meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. Uh, that means that uh, one, one in six of us know um, uh, a family member or a friend who at some point in his or her life will have a problem with alcohol. Now the rates are a little lower for other drugs, but I mention this because as I'm going through some of these examples, I would like for you to think about people that maybe you have known that you think has had an alcohol, have an alcohol problem, or uh, someone that you've suspected has an alcohol problem. And let me just say, nobody starts out to get addicted. In fact, if you think about how alcohol is portrayed in the media, it's portrayed in a very positive way. It's a social facilitator, and it helps people be more relaxed in social settings. But alcohol results in protracted use, results in behaviors that become more compulsive. And people who drink heavily feel like they lose control. They lose control over their behavior, and they actually also feel like they lose control over their thinking abilities. It becomes difficult for them, even if they want to cut down, it's hard for them to do so. So heavy alcohol uh, users have an experience of loss of control over their decision making. They feel like they have a loss of will. They no longer are free to fully make the decisions and carry their actions out in a way that they would like. So uh, I have some statements up here uh, from those who have developed alcohol problems. Their quotes actually uh, from uh, reading that folks who attend Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step programs uh, report. People say that we're unable at times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering that occurred under the influence. And we're without defense against that first drink. Also, whether such a person can quit depends to some extent on the degree to which He's already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. So these both relate to constraint in our choice of action and limitations uh, in or where we feel like we're under the, the power of another thing, in this case, alcohol. So it is very remarkable, isn't it? that that's where some people can end up in terms of their free will. But where we start, at least according to Barbara Holland uh, in her book on the joy of drinking, is that alcohol serves as the social glue for us in, in the human race. Most people start to drink for positive reasons, to be with friends, to relax, to improve our mood. These are the kinds of expectancies that we have about what will happen to us 
when we drink. Not that we're going to lose control. Not that we're going to behave in ways that we'll be embarrassed by or that it'll develop, we'll develop problems, legal or medical problems. But one of the things that happens is that as use becomes habitual, that is, we drink with the same people in the same places, it solidifies a pattern. And our thinking about whether to drink becomes less deliberative. It's just we're going to this party or we're going to be with these friends and oh yeah, we always have a drink. We always have wine with, as adults, we always have wine with dinner. As adolescents, they're going to a party and of course there will be alcohol there. Eventually what happens when you engage in the same behaviors, in the same situations, with the same people over time, you solidify a pattern such that we stop weighing the pros and cons of whether it is reasonable to drink in this situation or to use in this situation. And eventually, we stop evaluating that, uh, even in new situations. And that loss of deliberative thinking, cognitive psychologists refer to as automaticity. And that loss or that shift uh, of implicit habituation, I think is related to this loss of freedom of choice. You might think of it like driving a car. You're all going to be driving home or walking home after this, but many of you will be driving home. And the more you drive and the more you go down the same roads, the less you think about where should I turn. You don't even think about whether you, which side of the road you need to be on. Um, uh, and you don't think about if you, have, uh, if you don't have an automatic, how to do a clutch or how to step on the brake. Those things become automatic. They're so habitual. You don't have to think about them. There are a lot of evolutionary advantages to knowing what to expect and how to act and behave in a situation so that you can take your mind off of those things and concentrate on other things, particularly new things in a situation. Similarly, when we drink or use in the same situations with the same people, that habit strength builds up and there are patterns of neuronal connections that become more solidified. And in fact, what we're doing is we're transitioning from controlled or deliberative cognitions to this automatic thinking. There are lots of advantages, as I said. Works well. You don't have to think, do I need to eat today or not? Uh, but sometimes when there are negative consequences, those decisions about what you need to eat, even if there are, there are things that are habitual, can lead to problems such as obesity. Certain substances, for example, can do the same thing. There are negative consequences, but we built up these patterns of behaving and patterns of thinking such that we no longer weigh the pros and cons. So I think it's very interesting that what happens in the substance use process is much more intense in terms of deriving this automaticity. We shift more quickly from weighing the pros and cons of engaging in a behavior to not evaluating those short and long-term consequences. And in fact, 
there is evidence that some of the brain changes that occur as a result of exposure to alcohol and drugs actually facilitate that transition from deliberative thinking to automatic thinking. So how do alcohol and drugs do that? How do they actually change what we think and how we think? How do they change our decision making? Well, decision making and repeated behavior results in these neural connections, some of which are strengthened. And the ones that are strengthened most profoundly are those in the reward pathways, such areas as the nucleus accumbens in the brain. So alcohol activates those pathways in a profound fashion. Marijuana does. Nicotine does. Other drugs do. Um, unfortunately, it's not just that those reward pathways are activated or accelerated. There is diminished inhibition of pathways that are critical for us to do that cortical control. That is, evaluating the long-term consequences. So there are certain pathways from the frontal lobes down to the limbic regions of the brain where we're, we're thinking from the executive functioning planning part of the brain down to the emotional part. And those pathways are not operating and activated uh, in the same fashion with, under the, after the exposure to alcohol and other drugs. So it deteriorates those pathways in a way. So we're losing our control or our ability to inhibit our behavior. Now that's really not important if what you're going to engage in is something really good for you. It's really positive for you. But if it's something that has important negative consequences, either in the short run or the long run, that's a critical problem because those changes are important in developing self-regulation, um, deciding what to do and when, and when to stop behavior that's really counterproductive for us or dangerous, disadvantages us in some way. And it is interesting to note that alcohol and other addictive substances actually change the structures that are necessary for this mature decision-making, that is, that self-regulation, that stop part of the process. Remember I showed you this slide about the brain as it's developing from early childhood to the mid-20s? One of the things that's very interesting here is that in the case of adolescents and drugs, the brain structures that are necessary for that deliberative decision-making are in the process of being developed. But alcohol and other drugs impact our ability to attend to information, to process new information, think of different options for ourselves in situations how to get out of a stressful social situation, uh, how to manage your emotions on a first date, those kinds of things that are very frightening and uh, emotionally activating for adolescents. They imp alcohol and drugs impact the very structures that are necessary to perform that processing. And I just want to share with you, it's not just 
that processing, but it's also how efficient we are in our thinking abilities. For example, it's not just the structure that changes, but as we look at uh, brains maturing from late adult or during the course of late adolescence, this slide happens to be a project that was done in conjunction with a colleague of mine, Susan Tapert, here at UCSD. And we're looking at white, white matter changes in late adolescence. And what we found is there is continued change or development in the microsculpture of the white matter during late adolescence. There's ongoing refinement of projection and association fire, fibers all the way to middle, the mid-20s. And this maturity uh, increases in uh, uh, frontal parietal, frontal, left frontal parietal, thalamic, and posterior limb of the interior capsule. Those, those are changes that occurred over the course of about a year and a half of measuring these tracks of communication in the brain. So this percentage of change in a year and a half. And what we were measuring is um, essentially how intact those nerve fibers are in their communicating with one another. So it's not just the structure of the brain, but it's how well our nervous system is communicating across different parts of the brain. And those correlations are related to how well people think and perform on behavioral tasks. In this slide, I'm showing you how alcohol impacts the ability to think in the short term. We studied youth who had an alcohol disorder after they had been sober for three weeks. And we compared them to adolescents, same age, same gender, same grade, from the same communities. They had the same socioeconomic background, and they actually had the same density or proportion of family history of alcohol and drug problems in their family. And when we looked at the adolescents who were abstinent for three weeks and who had a history of heavy alcohol use, and we compared them to these matched adolescents, and we gave them neurocognitive tasks to see both are they learning new information and are they retaining that information. What we found was very striking. After three weeks of abstinence, the adolescents who had a history of heavy drinking could learn new information at about the same rate as those who had not um, uh, ever had a problem with alcohol. That's the really good news, that after three weeks, they were able to learn that information. And it didn't matter whether that information was what we call verbal, like the sorts of things you'd learn in a, in a language class or a history class, or whether it was nonverbal, like you might learn in a science class or in a math class, that they both learned about the same amount. But we tested them 20, 20 minutes later to see how much they retained or remembered of the information that they had learned. So, for, and what you'll see here is that the non-abusing adolescents did very well. They uh, remembered over 95% of the information that they had learned just 20 minutes before. 
uh, that was true for both language and for the visual spatial kinds of things. But when we looked at the alcohol dependent youth, three weeks sober, they're back in school, they retained about 10% less. Now, remembering 85% is really good, but that 10% differential for a student in the classroom is the difference between an A and a B. It's a difference between a B and a C. It's the difference between a C and failing a class. And if you sit next to someone and you're working just as hard as that person and, and you're getting all that information in and then the teacher gives you a pop quiz 20 minutes later and you consistently are doing poorer than the classmate sitting next to you when you think you both have learned the same amount, that's very debilitating to one's self-esteem. And it starts a spiral that relates to how individuals think about themselves, what they're capable of, uh, whether, whether it's worth making decisions to not drink or to not use. And so even after three weeks, what I, what I want to point out here of abstinence is that youth might be well-intentioned, working just as hard in school, but we still see some cognitive um, uh, residual from their alcohol use, even after three weeks of abstinence. This is going to influence emotions, and it also influences what they can learn that can help them move forward in life, how to effectively cope with things. So there is this cumulative effect in development that will then further create a trajectory, a behavioral trajectory for them, not just a brain development trajectory, but a behavioral trajectory that's really not moving them in the right direction. And I want to give you just one other example of a a challenge that alcohol creates uh, for youth in their ability to make good decisions. And this is also uh, an example of how youth are more vulnerable uh, because of uh, exposure to alcohol. In this particular study, uh, we were looking at teens' responses to alcohol advertisements in the media and their responses to non-alcohol advertisements in the media. And first, we tried to get as jazzy a non-alcohol advertisement, one that they were just as interested in as the alcohol advertisement. And we equated them on many, many dimensions that we think might influence responsivity in the brain, like how much color is there, is it a social theme or a non-social theme, what are the light characteristics, do they actually like what's being presented or not. We equated these Uh, images on all of these dimensions. And then basically what we compared was, is there any difference in activation, all things being equal, in those advertisements of non-alcohol ads versus alcohol ads? And what we found, and what this slide shows, is that in regions of the brain that are most associated with affect and interest and craving, more in the frontal regions, and um, orbital 
prefrontal regions and anterior cingulate and the nucleus cummins, the reward parts of the brain, consistently. Those who had a history of heavier drinking responded more, their brains responded more to alcohol advertisements than youth who did not have that history of heavy drinking. And again, it's after a period of abstinence for these teens. Now, it could have been there beforehand, but they, they evaluated all of these visual cues in the same way. They liked them as much. They, were, they thought they were as bright, as jazzy. They, uh, they enjoyed them as much. But their brain is still responding to the alcohol cues, particularly in regions that relate to the reward pathways that I mentioned before. So it is, in fact, the case that exposure to alcohol can make us more vulnerable to uh, advertisements in the media. Um, it, whether we like it or not, there's increased activation in important regions of the brain that influence our ability to make decisions. So going back to what I was mentioning before, that I think this really should be adolescent addiction versus freedom. That is the neurobiological assault on our personal decision making. That youth are in fact more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol and adverse decision making and a reduction in the freedom of will, the freedom to choose for one's behavior as a result of the effects of alcohol. The brain not being fully developed. In fact, the parts of the brain that are critical to deliberations um, that reflect uh, consideration of long-term consequences in particular. And alcohol and, and, and drugs, in fact, appear to alter the brain's development, alter the structure of the brain, the connections, neural connections and pathways of the brain, and uh, the trajectory of development. It disrupts our ability to stop those things that we know might be bad for us. It disrupts our ability to stop action so we have enough time to think through the pros and cons of engaging in um, that behavior. I have the good fortune, and I thought I'd just mention it this evening, that here at UCSD, we're coordinating a national study to look at some of these very issues. How does alcohol and other drugs affect the thinking abilities and the development of the brain of adolescents as they move from around age 13 all the way up to age 24? And we have a number of sites around the, the country where we're investigating this, and we've got the, uh, we have the good fortune of having uh, support from five institutes in the National Institutes of Health uh, to do this. This will help us understand in more detail some of the things I've been mentioning, how much alcohol starts to produce these, these negative problems, how long does it take for a full recovery, is there a full recovery, can adolescent brains get back on track in terms of the appropriate developmental trajectory, 
And um, what does happen when you step? How does the brain respond then? And are there things that we could do to facilitate that recovery? I think all of those things are very important from both a practical and a theoretical perspective. So let me just say that from my perspective, addiction is that automatic thinking and that automatic behavior. Uh, It robs us of the ability to deliberate and to act in a free fashion. We no longer have that absence of constraint or choice in action that is the very definition of freedom. We do not have liberation from restraint or control by something outside. Addiction robs us of that, and alcohol and drug exposure robs us of that. It really is an assault as I see it, and that is the fundamental danger of addictive disorders. This assault against our freedom of choice. So now, just as we understand how things like uh, the pancreas functions or dysfunction could lead to insulin problems uh, that produce diabetes, now we understand a little bit more about what are some of the processes whereby a neurotoxic substance, like alcohol, that's a legal substance in our society, can produce problems in structure and function of our brain that will result in a reduction in our freedom of choice and our freedom of will that produces these compulsive behaviors and a loss of freedom. And I would just like to leave you with this notion that Um, Unlike the way we thought a decade ago, it's not that adolescents will outgrow it. It is, in fact, the case that adolescents are more vulnerable. Thank you. Dr. Brown, uh, some century ago or so, I learned that... uh, one of the problems with the metabolism of alcohol was that carbon monoxide got into the nerve cells, particularly in the cortex, which is what caused the loss of inhibition. And I also learned that every time you take a drink, a certain number of brain cells die. Is that still uh, an accurate evaluation of, of what happens? Wonderful, wonderful uh, question. It is, what is actually going on biochemically in terms of brain cells? And how does alcohol impact brain cells? Alcohol in particular is um, water permeable. That, that means that it can get in every cell of your body, it, every cell of your body, including your brain cells. And we now know through um, animal studies that we are not quite able to do with humans, a number of things about the effects of of alcohol on cell membranes, uh, on loss of plasticity, um, uh, on inflammation that's produced uh, by alcohol. And in fact, we know that, as you learned a number of years ago, that we actually lose brain cells Uh, from this neurotoxin. And in particular, the brain cells that appear to be, or the the cells in the region of the brain that appear to be most sensitive, are in the hippocampus. 
Now, the hippocampus is the part of the brain where when we're learning something, that gets consolidated into memory and then is uh, linked with these other neural connections. So it's a very important part of the brain, that memory part of the brain. And you might recall I showed a slide that showed that even after three weeks of abstinence, here we have adolescents who are in school, working very hard, and are mem- remembering 10% less in 20 minutes. So it's, a, it's a, an indication of hippocampal damage. The other thing that we know now about the effects of alcohol that I think we didn't know uh, a few years ago is that brain cells uh, develop all the time. And one of the adverse effects of alcohol is an inhibition of the ability to generate new brain cells. And that's particularly true for hippocampal brain cells. So uh, uh, you're a wise man uh, for remembering all of that. It's a miracle, as that's called. And and we have a few tidbits to add to that in terms of our understanding. I actually have a slight follow-up question. One of the problems, of course, with adolescent drinking is the purge drinking and the, the serious consequences of that. I'm wondering if they their brains are more susceptible to, you know, to these toxins than, than later on? And, or is it just that they drink too much? What a wise man. Let me tell you about some animal studies. Uh, because we can't, we can't do these studies where we're actually dissecting brains after certain types of experiences with adults. Uh, but we can with mice and with rats. And uh, we have some marvelous models of the differences between the effects of alcohol when there's exposure in the adolescent phase of development for a rat versus the adult phase. So there are a variety of different models, but I'm going to tell you about this one experiment uh, done uh, in New York where they studied, uh, they exposed um, uh, mice to alcohol to high doses, either by injecting it directly into their brain, having them drink it, or via vapor. So they've done these experiments all different ways. They expose uh, animals to alcohol either during their adolescence or during adulthood, and they have them learn these mazes. And um, the uh, adolescents, adolescent animals who were exposed to alcohol relative to those that were not and relative to adult animals who were exposed to alcohol showed dramatic impairments in the retention of uh, what they learned in the maze or how to work that maze. Uh, And also on autopsy showed more abnormalities in the actual cellular structure, particularly in the frontal lobes and other regions as well. And there are differences in the size of different uh, regions, lobes in the brain. But what that shows, to your point, sir, is that early exposure results in more profound behavioral impairment later on, poorer retention, if you will. And it also shows that brain tissue is more vulnerable in adolescence to that exposure than adult brain tissue. So 
We haven't cut apart uh, uh, brains and done this examination with humans yet, but uh, that's the way it is with uh, mice and rats. So um, I have a question about recovery. So uh, your research has done a a fine job of... uh, Delineating the causes of uh, the, the the damage that can be caused by alcohol in uh, adolescent brains, but what about uh, what do you know? I know you're doing research on this, and it's a long-term uh, prospect. But what do you know about the prospect of recovery and resilience uh, for those who are addicted and who stop? So this is, a, I think, perhaps one of the most important things since such a large portion of our society has experience with, with alcohol. And let me start with uh, the adult's uh, story. And the adult story is that we can see continued improvement in cognitive abilities, thinking abilities, up to five years after an individual who is addicted to alcohol or other dr- drugs stops. So the, the, most of the recovery occurs in the first few months after people stop, but there are subtle improvements that occur over time relative to other individuals who, uh, changes in brain functioning relative to other individuals who never had a problem with alcohol so that, and, and drugs. So that people who continue to remain abstinent show greater improvements, closer to a return to what would be would have been their baseline or going back to normal all the way out to five years. I think that is such a tremendously positive thing for people to know, that by staying clean and sober, they will be able to improve, continue to improve over years in their thinking ability. So that's what we know for adults. For adolescents, we don't know, and that's why we're doing these studies. We don't know. Uh, we've done preliminary studies that show, in the short run, there are a number of improvements, just as with adults, that memory, memory improves, that attentional abilities do improve in the short run. We don't know if that improvement continues over long periods of time, uh, and we don't know if it's complete. So the studies that we're doing now uh, are opportunities to look at the way adolescents are functioning before they're exposed to alcohol and drugs over extended periods of time and follow them over time and see what happens for those who stop and what, uh, what is their recovery like. So are they as good as they were before they started or uh, is there some kind of uh, um, sub-optimal threshold? Uh, now, one might think that since the brain is in the process of changing and maturing, that there's more resilience for adolescents, and I have my fingers crossed for that. I'm hoping, in fact, that that's the case. Humans are remarkably resilient, but we don't know yet, but we do know that youth are more vulnerable in the short run to the adverse effects of alcohol. Thank you. Great question. So you described the uh, neurobiological um, changes that underpin this loss of will um, or impairment of will, and it sounds like those that would also impair uh, an adolescent's desire to stop drinking. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that challenge of those underlying structure ch- 
changes, how that affects the then the recovery process? Wonderful question. So how do the neurobiological changes that, that I described with regard to the reward pathways and inhibition pathways influence the ability for one who wants to change his or her behavior, who wants to stop? And I really think it's an exquisite question because what has been intensified through uh, habitual use of substances are these reward pathways. And, um, and it is very difficult to find other activities on a routine basis that can provide the same level of reward, intensity, and duration as substances. And uh, so they are the, they're the quick fix uh, for emotional distress, uh, for um, it creating positive affect, in the long run, of course, that's not what it does, but in the short run, that certainly is what it does. And so part of the recovery process, from my perspective, need, mean, it needs to be developing an, an array of reinforcing activities that bring value and a different kind of reward, not all of which is short-term reward, like the, the experiences that one would have under the influence of alcohol or other drugs. But frankly, if the reward structure in abstinence doesn't in the long run outweigh the reward experience under the influence of substances, it it is unlikely that those individuals without external constraints will be able to sustain their abstinence. The other thing that that makes it difficult is that by using alcohol or other drugs uh, in that more automatic fashion, individuals are missing out on opportunities to develop the kinds of behavioral skills and coping skills that we need to manage many of life's stressors. And so uh, extended periods of abstinence offer an opportunity for individuals to refine those skills, to build those skills, and to build confidence and competence in performing in stressful situations. I think both of these things go hand in hand, just as the impact of alcohol and drugs influences the rapid progression to that automaticity and the loss of freedom of choice. They also make it more difficult to move back uh, toward behavioral recovery. Thank you for asking. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.